0: Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College
1: Park. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to that passage, Acts chapter 6. Our text will be verses 1 to 7 today, and the title of the message is Growth, Governance, and the Glory of God. Part 1, part 2 will be next week as we talk about some important things that are um, opportunities and also some challenges for us as a church ministry and uh, what we as elders are doing to address them and walk through this season together. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its relevance in our lives. Thank you that the way in which you use it is to lay it before us, and then you use the Spirit of God to um, open our hearts, our minds, our spiritual eyesight to see things that we wouldn't see. And Lord, we're praying that you would do that today through your word. Help us to know how to be the kind of church that really exalts Christ and really... Impacts people's lives. Thank you for the good gift that you've given us in this body. And we are really, really grateful to be together to worship, to sing, to pray, to love each other, and to receive uh, a gift from you, which is the, the body of Christ functioning well together. So, Lord, we pray now you'd be our teacher through the Spirit. We ask that your Son Jesus would be glorified and that we would make incremental steps today in becoming more like him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our mission as a church is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. And I hope that you know that that mission is not just some nice wall art, but this is a commitment that we all make together that essentially means that we believe that there's nothing more glorious, more wonderful, more exciting, more powerful, more endearing, or or more attractive to the world than a group of people who believe with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength that it is truly joyful to follow Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you believe that? Okay, just so you know, the 8 o'clock service said amen louder than you did, okay? Just so you know, okay? We'll try that again. That that we believe that there is nothing more glorious, more attractive, more endearing, more wonderfully beautiful to the world than a group of people who believe with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength that following Jesus with passion is really where it's at. That was good, that was good. See, the thing I love about College Park Church is that that's not just the mission statement, that's how you really live. For example, this week I got a phone call from uh, one of our church members that just couldn't wait to share with me what had happened. He's a business owner in town, and after the message last week, which was on joyful generosity, he um, remembered that his uh, partners and him had received um, an income a bonus from a relationship that they have with another business in town. And he saw that income and that bonus through a different lens because of our time talking about joyful generosity. He thought of the employees that he had in his organization and decided that the Lord was leading him to take that bonus and give it to his employees. And this time, rather than just doing that, he decided that the other thing the Lord wanted him to do was to share with his other business partners, who, by the way, are, are not Christians, uh, what he was doing and why, and to invite them to join him in giving to the employees. And so he uh, sat down with them and uh, went, over, went over the sermon, even told them about the M&M story and, and all that, and, uh, and, and said that he was feeling like God wanted him to, to give to the employees to try and help them during this time, and that God was putting on his heart to be joyfully generous to them. And uh, his two... Um, non-believing business partners agreed to do the same and the beautiful thing was is that he was then able to write a letter to all of his staff on Friday when they gave out that uh, little bonus to all of their employees. And in that um, letter, he put 2 Corinthians 9-11, which says this, You have been made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and this generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. He wanted to be sure that when the employees got the gift, that they knew that there was a spiritual lesson behind it. And so what happened, understand this, that the joy of a believer... Who's joyfully generous, motivated unbelievers to give such that employees received a gift and therefore were thankful to God. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. Here's another story. This week, our benevolence ministry was able to assist a, a young woman who needed to um, catch up on her gas bill in order to have her gas turned back on. It was turned off, the bill was substantial, about $700 as part of our benevolence ministry we were able to meet that need and able to cut her a check and she was standing in line at citizens gas getting ready to have her gas turned back on and she noticed that in front of her that there was a, another woman who was also trying to get her gas turned back on and she couldn't help overhearing the conversation a little christian eavesdropping right and, and this was beautiful she, she heard that the woman had just gotten out of the hospital given birth to a baby And in order to turn her gas on, she needed $44, which she didn't have. And so here's a CPC member standing in line with a check for $700 and realizing what she'd heard on Sunday, put her hand in her pocket and remembered she has $50 in her pocket. That was her grocery money for the week. And she's standing there with this check from the church and $50 in her pocket. She knew that she had enough groceries to get her by for the rest of the week. And so what she did is she took out the $50, leaned forward and said, Here, ma'am, have this. The woman was obviously overjoyed that she now could have her gas turned back on, and our College Park church member was overjoyed that she had the opportunity to give, but that's not the end of the story. The woman paid her bill, left, and, and uh, walked away, and then the College Park member got up to the, um, the counter, and the person took her check and uh, looked at her and said, oh, and just so you know, uh, we're going to go ahead and waive the $150 deposit that's required, and so that'll be a credit on your next month's bill. And so the woman called us just so excited and so overjoyed because now she was able to see that her act of generosity created the blessing of God in her life. And the lesson that she learned was if she had not given the $50 in her pocket, she would have missed the beautiful economy of God and how he continually shows himself to be far more generous than we could ever imagine, ask, or think. Listen, that is igniting a passion to follow Jesus. That's what it means. It means that from the depth of our souls, from the internal workings of our hearts, we believe with everything in us that Christ really does make a difference and he is attractively contagious. And the beautiful thing is is that's having an effect on our church ministry here. Let me show you a graph. This represents our uh, monthly attendance average from April to date. Okay? This represents that in April of 2008, we we're averaging about 2,200 people and igniting a passion to follow Jesus is contagious, such that you're inviting people to come with you, and the result now is in February we averaged 2,800 people on Sunday morning. Uh, that's a 25% growth since April. What that means is, uh, okay, yeah, we can clap. That's fine. What that means, I don't know if you've noticed, it's a little more crowded around here, which is a, a good thing. Uh, it means that we've started the worship too, which is uh, a, an overflow service that Uh, We've added a number of things to that to make it feel more like a a service that's just parallel to this one. But it also means that um, as a church ministry, it's it's pressing on our forms, our ministries, and asking us to really make uh, ministry happen in new and different ways. What you may not know is that every Sunday, an average of 15 new people go to our coffee talk room. Fifteen people every week. That's why every week Eric talks about the coffee talk room. So if you wonder why do he talk about the coffee talk room every week, here's why: because there's people every week who've never heard about the coffee talk room. That's why. Why do we talk about the mission statement every week? Because there's somebody every week who hasn't heard about it. So please don't sit out there like, they talk about it every week. We're not talking to you. <laughs> We're we're, we're talking to the folks who've never heard that before, and we just want you to know they're here, and therefore we want them to come and be a part of the church ministry. Here's another data point that I found just really exciting and just filled my heart with joy. You know that we have 50 people next week are going to join the church, and we're on track to have 350 people join our church in 2009. And not, not only that, there's this section over here in the third service that's filled with single adults. You know one of the fastest growing areas of ministry at college park is single adults. They're finding a community in their, their ABF class, they're coming to the worship service. They, they sit over here. In fact, whenever I mention them, they're like, woo! So whenever I want like a like a cheap amen, I just throw in single adults, just wherever they Whoo! Amen. <laughs> and, and that class, listen, that class in this over the summer and in, in last fall grew from 45 to 85 people in about three months. It doubled in size. So My point in all of this is for you to understand that there is some exciting things that are happening, that we're inviting people to become a part of what it means to be uh, integral into this body, investing into the work of ministry, into one another's lives, and that also presents some opportunities for us and some challenges that we need to talk about as a church ministry. So that's why we're talking about growth governance and the glory of god for this week and next is as, as elders we need to talk with you a little bit about some things that we're doing and what we feel god leading us to do and how to be able to manage this great thing that's happening at college park church so today we're going to talk about the issue of governance well, i want to begin by first talking about an, an idea that you may not have heard before it's called semper reformanda sounds like kind of a fancy word what does it mean well it came out of the protestant reformation And it essentially means always reforming. It means always changing. And it came out of the Reformation because there was this sense that the existing church was more committed to its traditions, more committed to its forms, than it was to the Scriptures. So Semper Reformanda is essentially a commitment to look at everything through the lens of Scripture. To look at everything through the lens of the movement of the Spirit of God. Meaning that the Word of God will be our authority, but that we need to realize that the Spirit of God uses things differently during each generation, and therefore we need to figure out the forms of ministry that we use and be sure that we hold them loosely. Every church has forms. It has things like doctrinal statements, programs, traditions, a culture. Uh, particular ways of doing ministry, other things that make it, make it unique. And the church, in order to really be everything that God wants her to be, has to be continually looking at everything that it has through this lens of Scripture in order to avoid two dangers. The first danger is that we would view or treat our traditions as though they were on par with the Bible. For instance, we would say things like, real pastors wear suits, yeah. Or we'd say, real churches give altar calls, or real churches have drums, or real churches sing hymns. Those are forms. Those are things that aid us, but sometimes we can make them too much on par with the Bible. The second error to avoid is assuming that the way we've always done things is either the most biblical or the most effective way of doing it. Sometimes we can get stuck in a rut where, you know, something used to work really well and before we know it, it's not very effective anymore. And Semper Reformanda means that the church is continually looking at how we're doing things and why, looking at it through the lens of Scripture and asking our hearts to be led by the Spirit of God and being open to how can God help us to be more effective as a church ministry. One person I found this week said this, we have tended to fossilize the traditions and forms of the past, Forgetting that the Spirit moves on and that the church is only true to its Lord when it allows itself to be broken on the anvil of the Word and be reformed again and again. I love that. To be broken on the anvil of the Word. You see, a commitment to Semper Reformanda means that you're committed to looking at everything through the lens of Scripture and holding other things loosely. For instance, who would have thought 40 years ago that we would be able to simulcast a service here and in Columbus, Indiana? Who would have thought? Who would have thought that we'd have the technology to be able to put uh, a sermon audio on a website and broadcast it all over the world? Every once in a while, I have Paul, my assistant, just for kicks, uh, look at Google applications and find where are all the places around the world that have downloaded our messages. And, and, and there are countries that I didn't even know exist on there. And there, there are places, all, who would have thought that we'd have that kind of technology, that kind of form, that kind of model of, uh, of ministry to be able to use. And so the idea is that in every generation, we're continually looking, at how can we be effective while never compromising our basic commitment to Scripture. So, this week I was looking at a book called Elders and Leaders, and Gene Getz, the author of that book, identifies three lenses, and this was helpful to me, to kind of look through our forms, or to look at our forms, rather. The first lens is the lens of Scripture, and Scripture gives us principles, or concepts, or biblical um, ideals that we're to strive for and be able to process our thinking through. And then also, the next lens is the lens of history, where we can look at at, at, at historical uh, lessons that we could learn. Essentially, you know, we're not the first people to do church. And that means that we can look at history and learn some things and not repeat the same mistakes that others have made. And there's also some things that were done in the past that are really helpful, and they're still helpful. And just because they're old doesn't mean they're bad. In fact, some old traditional stuff is actually really good and helpful. And that's why it's still around, because it's still good. Um, Then also we have culture. Meaning that there's different ways that churches do ministry in different dynamics and different cultures. For instance, the way we do ministry here at College Park, it might be different than other churches in our community. And uh, that doesn't make us better or them worse or them better or us worse. It just means that we're different. For instance, how many of you have gone on a vision trip at College Park Church? Let me see your hands. Gone to a different country, okay? So a vision trip is a, a, a trip that our folks take to a different country to experience the work of global missions. And, you know, when you go on a missions trip, you realize, wow, they really do things differently there. When we were in India, everybody who came up on the platform took their shoes off. These guys are preaching in bare feet. I was like, wow, don't have clean socks today. You know I mean? It's like, look at those folks, and, and that's a, a different method, a different model, a, a different form. Not that it's right or wrong, it's just culturally different. In Slovakia, for instance, the pastors are partly paid by the church and partly paid by the government. First time I heard that, I was like, and that works? You know, I was like, wow, that's interesting. And it's just the way they do it. It's a different form. The the point is, is that there's scripture, there's history, there's culture, and there's forms. And it's important for us to realize that semper reformanda means that we have to continually examine our forms through the authoritative lens of scripture, through the informative lens of history, and the practical lens of culture. So not that forms are bad. We all need forms. We need things like Sunday school classes, small groups, uh, uh, amazing praise and choir. All these forms, they're not bad. They're actually helpful, but we have to continually look at everything that we do and ask ourselves, how can we be more biblical and effective? Now, why am I saying all of this? Here's why. Healthy churches continually work on reforming themselves. That's why. Let me say it again. Healthy churches continually work on reforming themselves. Churches in crisis don't. Healthy churches work on it intentionally. Churches in crisis have to because it's coming at them. And one of the things that our elders are committed to is a process of looking at us as a church ministry to be able to talk about what are the things that we can do to be more effective, to be more biblical, to be more helpful, to be more strategic. So I want you to understand that there's no loaded agenda this morning. In fact, it really is a sign of health and vitality that we can even talk about these things. It's a sign of health that we're not just trying to survive week to week, not just trying to to, to sort of fill the cracks, so to speak, that are leaking, but instead to say, okay, what are the things now as a church that can help us to be even more effective as we move forward for the glory of God and give us potentially even more ability to impact and accomplish the mission that God has given us? Now, what does this have to do with Acts 6? Look at that passage, will you? I, want you? I want to show you this and see how this played out in the early church. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. What happens here in this passage, it records an important moment in the life of the young church in Jerusalem. In many respects, what you see here was a defining moment in the ministry. They had to determine what God was calling them to do, and in effect, what it was was a time for significant reform. Look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so notice, first of all, what's happening there, is that we've got a growth that's taking place. The disciples, there's more people coming to faith in Christ, there's more people becoming followers of Jesus, and in the season of that growth, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. So the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Gentiles. The Hellenists were Jews, and if you know a little bit about the uh, ancient Near East and the culture in which the Bible was written, the Jews um, sort of thought that they were God's chosen people and that in order for Gentiles to become a part of God's community, you had to become Jewish. So when the gospel comes, there's this immediate challenge to the church of how do you get Gentile believers and Jewish believers to worship together. And the problem that happens here is that more and more people were coming to faith in Christ, and in the midst of that, the Gentile believers said, hey, you're not taking care of our widows the same way that you're taking care of the Jewish widows. Now, this had racial overtones. This had historical overtones. This could have blown the place apart. So what happens here, in the midst of a a season of great growth, the disciples were challenged. So, we see first of all that growth tested their forms. Because these disciples are being added, suddenly now it tested their existing models of ministry. The way in which they cared for widows couldn't be the same anymore. They had to make adjustments and had to change. They had to take the ways in which they'd done ministry before and figure out a different, better way to do it. And they needed to do it quickly because this is a problem. Notice, secondly, there are two solutions that they offered. Look at verse 2 to verse 4. So what happens? What, did you see the two things that they did? There's two things that these disciples chose to do. Two priorities, or, or, or two solutions. I gave you one already. Right priorities and right people. That was the solution. They, they said, first of all, right priorities. It's not right that we should leave preaching the word of God and serve tables. This took courage to say. Because you can imagine what you might have said. Oh, so you can't serve tables? That's too good for you? You're just going to go and... So they said, no, look, we can't leave this priority and next week we're going to talk about priorities of our leadership team as we move forward the second thing though is what we're talking about today was right people so the two solutions were right priorities and secondly right people essentially the apostles understood that they needed to create a new form of ministry to care for these widows and their solution was not let's write a new policy manual (laughs) not let's develop a bunch of rules not let's develop a new pro what did they do they said find the right people and guess what those right people will know what to do so the focus was not necessarily on a new program but instead finding the right people so the solution was first right priorities and secondly the right people and then notice what was the result look at verse seven and the word of god continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in jerusalem so notice what happens He describes, Luke, the writer of Acts, describes that the word of God continued to increase. So their new ministry form, their new reprioritization created more... Um, margin, more opportunity for growth and the word of God continued to expand continued to increase meaning the influence of the word and secondly, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem so their, their new model created margin for greater effectiveness in ministry and then, notice the greater influence and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith who are these people? these are priests who have committed their life to serving at the temple And what happens is because of the expanding influence of the church, the word of God increases the the ability of the church to be able to grow. Disciples are, are multiplied greatly, and they're even having expanding influence in their culture as more priests are becoming obedient to the faith. So they discovered a way to be true to the word and to be more effective. So the third thing that you see in this passage is this. The greater effectiveness was the result. And this is what happens when people, as they're pressed because of growth, look at their forms, reevaluate, reprioritize and also be sure they've got the right people doing the right things. This is what can happen, is that greater effectiveness can be the result. Greater opportunity for ministry, greater um, avenues for the gospel to be able to be preached. So right priorities and right people. Both are essential, and both are part of the process of continually reforming. If you have the right people in the right place doing the right ministry, it makes all the difference in the world. So, what does Acts 6 teach us? It teaches us a very important concept in the Bible as it relates to governance, or how a church is led. And here it is. It is that we need right people, right ministry, and flexible forms right people, right ministry, and flexible forms. You see, the Bible doesn't talk a whole lot about the forms of ministry, and I think wisely so. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about the way in which we're supposed to do everything, but it does tell us very specifically about the kind of people that are supposed to be in leadership roles and in leadership positions. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about how many different groups of deacons you should, you should have. We have, for instance, uh, visitor deacons, we have facility deacons, we have compassion deacons. You're allowed to be creative in the forms. It doesn't tell you how often elders should meet or how long those meetings should be. I have an idea how long God wants them to be, but um, <laughs> he doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us uh, about constitutions. And here's the thing. Sometimes folks can believe that the way a church is safe and protected in the future is by having everything in writing in a really strong, really specific constitution. And you know what? I'm not against constitutions. I think they're great and helpful. But the reality is, you know the best way in which to protect a church over the long haul? Here's how. Have the right people in the right positions make the right decisions. That's really what it is. Because I know churches who've had great constitutions, great documents, great policy manuals, and terrible people in leadership, and the place was not safe. And I also know churches in other parts of the world, they don't even know what the word constitution means for organizing a church. They're gathered in house churches and cell churches. So the idea of putting this all down on a piece of paper and having an annual business meeting and what in the world? We're trying to survive against persecution, but they've got right people and the right place of ministry making the right decision. That place is safe as it possibly could be. So the idea is right people, right ministry, flexible forms. Let me show you how this kind of plays out. A couple other principles from a number of other texts. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. Turn there, will you? Ephesians 4, verse 11. When we're talking about right people and um, in the right position, what I want you to see is that one of the things that God gives to the church is he gives gifts to the people of God in the form of people. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 says... When he ascended on high, he led a host captives and gave gifts to men. So when I've candidated here, I I unpacked this verse a little bit. We're not going to take time to do it fully today. But it, it means that when Jesus ascended, he gave gifts as a part of the spoils of war. And those are spiritual gifts. And a part of those spiritual gifts are actual people. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, here's the deal. God gives the church gifts in the form of people. And therefore, in the body of Christ, there are all sorts of gifts that God has given us. And the responsibility of the church is just to recognize those whom God has given us. It's the difference between... Um, looking at somebody who's in a ministry position as though somehow you made them a leader spiritually. You see, we don't make people a leader spiritually. God does. We just recognize it. It's a small little nuance, but it's a big deal. And the reason why that's important is that there are all sorts of people in our church ministry who have been gifted for the work of ministry, and our role is to find them, to recognize them, and say, go do that. Because you've been given to us as a gift. You've been given to us by God to do the work of the ministry. So in one sense, you've given me the responsibility to be lead pastor at College Park Church, but the reason you gave me that responsibility was because you recognized the gifting of God that came from him to me for you. And that's the same with everybody in the work of ministry. The point of all of this is, frankly, relatively simple. It means that we don't make people spiritual leaders, God does, we just recognize it. Which is part of the wisdom of your search team here at College Park, who is called the recognition team. It's beautiful language, really fits the spirit of Ephesians 4. Now, look at another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, setting that up, that God has given us gifts in people, and we're to recognize those gifts, we then have some very clear instruction on what the characteristics of the pattern of their lives need to be. And there's three passages that we could look at. 1 Timothy 3, 1-13. to We could also look at Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. They all say essentially the same thing with a little bit different nuance. And the only passage I want to specifically read is 1 Timothy 3, verses 1-7. to This is the qualifications for the elders. Here's what Paul says. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. So just just stop right there for a moment. Notice that he says, if anyone aspires to this office, it's a good thing. You know what that means? It means that to desire to be spiritually matured and to be in in the part of governing the church, to be a part of the spiritual leadership of a church, is a really good thing and you should desire it. That means that there's some young men in this audience who are going to listen to this on an mp3 file or in worship to or at Columbus who you need to hear this. We need you to grow and become godly. We need you to know those scriptures. We need you to be like First Timothy 3 because we need you as a part of the eldership of College Park Church sometime in the future. And it is right and godly and spirit-led for you to say, I want to esteem to that kind of spiritual role not because you want a big head or long meetings (laughs) but rather because it's spiritually something that paul says it's a noble task and it's a spiritually good thing to desire so that means that moms and dads we ought to encourage our children to become godly to grow we ought to affirm folks in the use of their gifts of ministry and we ought to always be looking behind us as who's coming up to fill the ranks of future spiritual leadership positions Paul then goes on and describes further what the characteristics need to be. Therefore, verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well fought by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. That stuff is non-negotiable. The number of elders, how often they meet, how long their meetings go, all that stuff, that's negotiable. But this stuff is not negotiable. Now, if you were to look at these three verses, you'd find about five different characteristics or five different things that that surface the first is these passages give us two offices elder and deacon this may be really basic for some of you some of you this may be oh wow that's interesting two offices what do they do elder primary responsibility is spiritual leadership and teaching deacon's primary responsibility is serving and the church needs both and both offices to function really well If the deacons don't serve well, then the elders can't lead well. And if the elders won't lead well, then the deacons can't serve well. So there has to be both. And neither one is more important than the other. They're both essential for the church to be healthy. The text also tells us that there's spiritual qualifications listed for deacons and also for elders, as we've already read those. Third, as I've already said, there's different responsibilities. Elders, again, are charged with teaching, deacons with serving. And fourth you'll notice if you were to look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and even 1 Peter 5, that there are different words that are used to describe the same office. For instance, sometimes it's referred to as an elder, sometimes overseer, sometimes pastor, sometimes pastor-teacher, sometimes just shepherd. And the reason is is that there's not one particular term that each of them kind of describes a different role, and throughout even church history, there's been a different designation of what each of those roles mean. So even how those people function and what they exactly do is open for for some uh, level of freedom, and yet the qualifications for that role is not open in terms of freedom. And finally, there's also a clear sense of plurality. What do I mean by this? I mean that when you look at the New Testament, it usually talks about elders, plural. Meaning that the church was managed by a unified team of godly men the sense of this group that's moving together. And they have different roles, but there's the sense of cohesion and moving forward in unison. So, right people and right ministry are essential for the life of the church. There's um, really no room for flexibility on, on what their qualifications are, but there's a great deal of flexibility in other areas. Let me give you a couple examples. There's flexibility, for instance, in how those elders come to that role. For instance, let me show you a graph. In Jerusalem, Antioch, and Ephesus, Paul writes to those elders and assumes that those elders have come out of the congregation and he's writing to them already having been established with no reference to how they got into that role. So he speaks to them about their oversight of the churches. But something really interesting happens in the book of Titus. He says to Titus about the churches in Crete that Titus is to go to this island and he's to go into each individual church that's established in these various cities, and Titus is to appoint elders. Okay, So the freedom here is that in some churches, he's speaking to the elders who've come out of the congregation. Apparently the congregation chose them. And in Titus's case, going to the churches of Crete, he says, Titus, no, you go and appoint elders in various cities in these churches. So you see again the difference of not freedom in terms of characteristics, but freedom in form, in terms of how they got there. Here's another example. It's clear that there's a plurality concept in the New Testament, but there also is clear that there's primary leaders in plurality. For instance, you've got Peter and James and John. James, known as the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter, usually the outspoken uh, a voice of the, the Jewish uh, cohort of believers in Jesus. You have Paul, who's the leader of the Gentile mission. So you have all sorts of leaders in the midst of plurality. So when I say plurality, don't think that there's no room for a leader or leaders of leaders. And here's another example. Ministry in every city and in various regions took on a different flavor, different strategy. For instance, sometimes Paul went to a synagogue. Other times he went to a cultural center like in the city of Athens. Sometimes he met with churches who met in houses. Other churches... Uh, met in synagogues some met in the temple mount area and so what paul did is depending on the city and the people group in which he was in he used a different form or a different method of ministering to each of those people so again all of this is to show you that there are some things that are non-negotiable and there are some things with which there's a great deal of flexibility and the key for church ministry leadership is understanding the difference what is non-negotiable and what is negotiable what is from God and what is something that we've created what's a construct that we've made and what is something that we have to receive directly from God with no opportunity to adjust or change so let me review here's what we've seen so far first the church should always be reforming always looking at herself examining how are we doing things biblically what is the lens through which we're looking at the things that we're doing in, in life and how are we doing in terms of effectiveness Second thing, the church is protected by the right people doing the right things. More than anything else, the most important protection of a church is having the right people with the right heart, the right relationship of, before God, looking at the ministry and doing right things. And finally, there's a level of flexibility in forms. There's a, a, an, an understanding that things that we do in ministry are creative, but not all of them are necessarily scriptural per se. All right, so now let me translate this for you, for us here at College Park. You might think, so what exactly is this all about, and where are you going with this? And let me just explain what's going to happen. On on March 29th, uh, 2009, just a few weeks from now, we're going to ask you to uh, approve um, a list of men who are going to be described here at College Park Church as pastors. That's what the end game is, and that's it. That's all we're doing. It's the first step of um, a process for us to be looking at who we are as a church ministry and how we're governed. College Park Church is governed by a team of elders. There's a picture from a, a staff um, an elder retreat that we had. And our, our elder council is made up of uh, lay elders, men who have full-time jobs outside of their roles, as elders, and staff elders, those elders that have the privilege of working for the church ministry. By the way, you're going to hear me say something um, a little different in that elder council, not elder board. Let me just explain what I mean by that. I, I don't necessarily, I'm not against boards or board of directors, but there's something about the word council that really works for me better than a board, and here's why. I don't want you to ever think that our elders function like a board of directors, like you'd see at some corporate office. There's some things that we do that kind of mirror that, but you need to know that church governance is really different than how uh, business is run. Not that business is run bad, but the point is, is that there's a, there's a different environment that needs to be there as a part of church ministry, and I think council captures that. What is that uniqueness? It is that there's this sense of one anotherness, the sense of brotherness, the sense that we don't own the ship. That we're just stewards of what's been given to us. That at the end of the day, this isn't our church, it's Jesus' church. And therefore, as a, a group of men gathered together, our aim is to seek the face of God. So we're going to take counsel, C U N S E L, together, and operate in unity, C O U N C I L, as a means of ministry and function together. So, elder council, these are the men that serve on our elder council. Now, along with our lay elders, we also have men who serve as pastors. These are men who are given the honor of devoting their full-time energies. They serve on our elder council as uh, not only elders, but also sort of a dual role. They serve as elders, and they also serve the church as pastor. Now, we are committed as elders to accountability and plurality. What does that mean? This is really important. It means that we're committed to being inside one another's lives and intentionalness. It means that not only do we have uh, monthly uh, council meetings together, but it also means that we have monthly accountability meetings. Which means once a month on top of our already established elder meetings, we have opportunity to be able to get into one another's lives and ask each other tough questions. And I can tell you, I've been asked some really tough questions. And one of the reasons that we came here was because of the beautiful safety net of elder plurality and accountability. The Reality is is that sometimes people look at a role like mine, like lead pastor, and they think, oh, I know what you do. You're like the CEO of the organization. (laughs) No, I'm not the president. I'm not the CEO. I I serve as the primary teacher, the vision caster, and the leader. But you need to know there's a beautiful team mentality and approach with our elders. True, we are unified, but it doesn't mean that we always think the same on everything. (laughs) Believe me, even though we speak with one voice, there's disagreement behind the scenes. There's a good spirit of camaraderie, but also an honesty, an intellectual honesty, about areas in which maybe we differ. Believe me, I've had ideas, and the elders have said, no. (laughs) I've had ideas, and they've shaped them. So our men are a lot of things, but trust me, they are not yes men. I'll tell you that. They make me work hard to be sure that I've thought through things. They make our staff dot their I's and cross their T's. And yet at the same time, there's a spirit of love and grace and camaraderie all under the banner of the cross. So, our elders have identified, along with all the things related to plurality and accountability, two governance things that we want to work on, and we want you to be aware of what they are. The first is this, is that we want to bring some clarity to our title and roles with our staff elders, particularly regarding who is called the pastor. I don't know if you've noticed it, but sometimes how we call certain people around here isn't consistent. We've got folks like Doug Paybody who was a senior pastor in southern Indianapolis who's an ordained pastor who's called a director of counseling. And and therefore it's not always really clear as to who's a pastor and and even clear as to how you become a pastor at College Park Church. So whenever we bring someone new in, the question always is, so exactly how do we get them in? How do we vote them in? Uh, For instance, we're going to be bringing a new position online soon. It's called the community life position. And our hope is that that will be a pastoral position. So if it's a pastoral position, you as a congregation will vote on it. Initially, we may bring that person in as a director because maybe they have to grow into the pastoral role. So we may hire them initially as a director, but when they become a pastor, you as a church will have the opportunity to vote on that. something our elders just feel as though it's important for the congregation to say yes. You are the pastors at College Park Church. And so we want to bring some clarity to that, and we're going to do that even today. The second thing is is to identify that there are some things in our Constitution that need to be brought up to date. Typically, when a church grows, its Constitution is about maybe five to seven years behind it, and that's the case with ours our Constitution hasn't kept up with us so in some cases it's really helpful in other cases it's really a hindrance there's some things that we'd like to move forward on and then we get the Constitution out we're like oh goodness we have to do this and this and some things that just don't fit us anymore that we need to to address And uh, in our church uh, congregational meeting on March 29th, we're going to list what those are for you so you can see here's the various discussion points that we're going to talk about. Here's the timeline for when we're going to talk about them so you'll know exactly what we're looking at and what kind of things that we need to really kind of clean up and bring up to date within our Constitution. The end game for all of this is to really begin a process of looking at ourselves as how we can become more effective, how we can... As the church, uh, really take the existing ministry God has given us and be sure that we're doing everything we can for the glory of God very, very well. Now, the, the thing you're gonna vote on is this. Our our list that we have of our pastors that you will vote on on March 29th is this list right here. And this involves some changing, some nuancing of titles. Uh, Some of these men were already voted on as pastors, others were not. Some of them we think they were voted on, but we're not sure when it happened, and so we're just going to take care of it all at once. We're going to press the big reset button and say, okay, once and for all, on this date, all of these fellows are uh, approved as pastor. Because you probably remember some of them that you voted on as pastor. I mean, you, you do remember when you voted on me as your pastor, right? So hopefully you can remember that, because I remember that. So all of those uh, names are going to be on that ballot. Let me just tell you quickly what each of these guys do. Uh, Mark Rogup, that's me, lead pastor, what do I do? I'm responsible for the word and prayer, for vision casting, and for leadership. My responsibility is to lead the elders, to lead our staff, and to lead the congregation, cast vision, figure out what do I believe God wants us to do, Proof that with the elders, lead them, lead our staff, and preach and teach the word of God and lead you in prayer. That's what my role is. Uh, Joe Rice, who formerly was uh, administrative pastor here, his role is going to be described now as executive pastor. What does this mean? It means that Joe's primary responsibility is to manage the vision, to take the vision as I'm articulating it, as our elders confirm it, and then figure out how to be able to get that done. What are the ways in which using our staff resources, our financial resources, our building resources, the history of the church, all those things, how can we move us from point A to point B? It's more than just the dangerous bees of church ministry, buildings, bodies, buses, and bucks. It's more than that. It it means leading staff. It means taking the the vision that that, that I'm casting and figuring out how to be able to make that happen. It means someone who's a right hand to me in ministry, sort of like um, Batman and Robin, sort of like the Lone Ranger and Tonto, sort of like Harry and... No, we won't go there, right? So... The point is, you've got a team, even in the midst of our senior staff, that are moving together in in unison. And his role is to lead our staff in that capacity. And one of the reasons why it's so important for him to do that job is his success in that allows me to keep on track with word and prayer, vision, and leadership. Now, the next one is Eric Anderson, pastor of worship. His responsibility is to lead everything you saw up here this morning. And I don't know if you know it, but there is hours and hours of what happens behind the scenes to be able to make this happen. And what happens every Sunday has been intentional, thoughtful, and prayerful. And I hope you appreciate and understand the level of spiritual commitment that this team has. Eric does not have an easy job. Music is not an easy thing um, to be able to shepherd because there's people on every side of the equation. I couldn't do his job. I couldn't sing, but I also couldn't have the kind of generous, gracious, non-defensive spirit that our brother has. God has given us a gift in him, and I hope that you see that and recognize that. Don Bartimus has an unusual gift set that he can give a kid a high-five on Sunday morning and really want to impact people's hearts, little kids' hearts, when they're really young and also do a hospital call an hour later and minister to death and dying, dying people. And Don's responsibility is to do both, both to care for our children and help them learn what it means to ignite a passion to follow Jesus, help their parents in that, and also to help us with our ongoing care needs. So the things like we started, like the Jump Start for Men, this, this um, Monday morning uh, Bible study and prayer time for men who are unemployed, that's under Don's umbrella. And even this Women's Jump Start thing that we're starting on Thursday at noon is under the care umbrella of College Park Church. The next position, Joe Bartimus. Joe used to be kind of the backup preacher around here. The the guy who, when Kim would be ill, would get the first call so that Joe could come in and and fill the pulpit. And one of the things that's exciting about the season that we're in is we're able to fully release Joe in this new title. Doesn't it sound all official and all big time? I mean, it's really good. Pastor of theological development. And all God's people said, ooh, right? I mean, what what does that mean? It means this. It means that Joe's responsibility is to help us be sure that we're orthodox in our teaching, that our doctrinal statement reflects the scriptures and equipping and training up and coming people in how to be able to think theologically, biblically, and develop them as leaders. That's why Joe's in charge of our adult Bible fellowships, our College Park Institute, why he's involved in ordination with uh, men as they're making their way through. And uh, Joe has a really important role, an important role for me when I get stuck on a text to call him in and say, hey Joe, what do you think about this? It's a really important role for the church ministry. Uh, Nate Irwin, pastor of Global Outreach. Not much change here. It just is uh, Nate's burden, his desire, and his passion to help us reach unreached people around the world. Uh, this uh, In April, I'm going to be with Nate in a visit to uh, Africa to investigate a new partnership to see if the Lord maybe is leading us to a, a new strategic partner in that region of the world to reach Muslims. Doug Paybody. Here's a new title. Instead of director of counseling, he's now pastor of Soul Care. You're like, what does that mean? Does that mean he's singing Motown music? Is that what that means? <laughs> no, it doesn't. He can try, but won't, that's not going to work. So, um, pastor of soul care, here's what that means. He's still going to counsel. We still want him to counsel, but here's the difference. Counseling is often thought of as just involved in um, an office kind of experience of, of professionalized um, counseling. And um, soul care is different. In that, it takes that and adds another dimension, which is this. We want College Park Church across the board to be a place that really cares for people's souls, such that small groups and ABF classes are the community in which we're able to deal with level one issues in people's lives, such that Doug is not only going to do some counseling, but he's also going to help you as small group leaders and as ABF leaders and maybe even as parents and and youth staff and all sorts of other areas of ministry, how to be able to take the word and really care for people's souls, so Doug's role is not only to be the frontline counselor, but also to be the frontline equipper. And that's why that class that he mentioned before, equipping the saints, is really important because that's the way in which we're going to help you as a church understand how to use your gifts' abilities for the glory of God in really caring for people's souls. And the last one is Dale Shaw, who's responsible for local outreach. The Brookside Initiative, um, helping us with new um, visitors that are coming. You see the visitor signs as you pull in every Sunday. The first hands who are ministering to people. And also finding ways for us to take existing areas of ministry and make them evangelistic in their focus. You see, all of this is part of our grand plan so to speak to have the right people in the right place and what we're going to do on march 29th is ask you to vote for each of those people and say do you think that these roles fit them and do you affirm that these fellows are the pastors of college park church now that said the constitution needs some work because we have two other fellows that don't serve as staff elders but also we need to find a place for them in this language which is um don helton And also Brian Woodward, who are also functioning in pastoral roles. But right now, our Constitution doesn't allow for any type of position like theirs. So that's why they're called directors. And so this is the thing that we have to kind of clean up, so to speak, and and find a way to um, communicate who and where and why and what. So the reality of what we're talking about is this, that at the end of the day, what we want is a church who would be able to function in a way that maximizes the opportunities that God has given us. So what does that look like? Here's what we're committed to. As elders, that we're going to maintain priorities in our lives and in the ministry. Be sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. That we're also going to identify areas of growth and strategies for improvement. we want to look around and say, hey, how can we be better? And how can we improve? What are the things that we need to do better on? Finding ways to communicate that builds unity and better decisions. One of the things we're working hard on, we've still got a ways to go, is how to communicate with you as a congregation. We're having a leader meeting after the third service today to roll out some additional things we're going to talk about next week. Allow our leaders to give some input, some feedback, because we found that, hey, when we get other people involved, they help us make better decisions. And finally, we're going to continue to pray and ask God for wisdom to know how he wants us to lead and, and live and follow him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. So what do we need you to do? We need you to also do that. We need you to maintain right priorities in your lives and the ministry. We need you to be able to grow in godliness and grace. We need you to keep inviting people, even though it's a little packed. Next week, we're going to talk about a couple things, which identify areas of growth and strategy. When you see someone who's struggling in the hallway, trying to find their way around here, don't think, boy, I hope Mark's on that. (laughs) Hope someone's on that. You get on that, right? Because this is just our church. This is your church, right? The ushers, when they come down and they're trying to find seats, one of the hardest jobs is to ask people who've already been seated if they're willing to move down and they come and they look at you like you know come on there's a seat like right in the middle but oh no you bought that seat right so you're like gonna sit there and we're asking you to move for the glory of god that's what we're saying just scooch down okay or here's another thing uh some of you 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 come here a little early and that's great and you park really close no time to change that gravel is godly find the spot Go way, way, way far away. Park a long ways away and drug your little kids into church. And when they say, why are we walking so far? You say, because gravel is godly. That's why. <laughs> because we're going to park far. Here's why. So we're going to let other people park close. It means that we need you to own some of these things and help us to help us in communication how how to be able to to think about some of the things that we're talking about and also to prayerfully seek god for wisdom this is at the end of the day what we need you to do because this church doesn't belong to us it doesn't belong to you at the end of the day it belongs to jesus it's his church. He's the center. He's the shepherd. We're just the under shepherd. And governance means right people at the right place, making the right decisions so Jesus can be, so that the church can be everything that Jesus wants her to be. This mission, beloved, is too important. This calling that we have is too critical, and life is too short for us not to say, okay, let's get serious about how to ignite a passion for Jesus in new ways at College Park Church so that we as a church can be everything that our Lord wants us to be. Growth, governance for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we um, thank you that we have the privilege of being a part of this body. And we thank you that you reign over all, over everything that we could ever plan, think, dream, or ask. You, Lord, are the one who we bend the knee to. And uh, we just thank you that you are bringing people to our assembly We thank you that you are allowing us to be stretched in some ways and we're asking you to give us grace to know how to think, how to pray, how to plan so we can maximize your glory and we can also experience our ultimate good which is you, Christ, being in the center of our lives. Oh, we love you and we're thankful for all that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name.